whether you're the birthing person or the non-birthing person, your grief could look very different depending on the type of griever that you are. And it can really lead to some difficult conversations in couples. Welcome to Freedom to Know Wellness. I am your host, Michelle Samuels. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. In recognition of this occasion, today's Freedom to Know Wellness, the podcast, will be a highlight episode featuring the Ontario-based organization called Pregnancy and Infant Loss Network, otherwise known as the Pale Network. The Pale Network is a nonprofit organization in partnership with Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, providing group and peer emotional support for all families for pregnancy loss, infant death, and elective abortion. These services also include support for grandparents. Although this organization is well-renowned in Ontario, sadly, not many in the general public are aware of this organization and the services it provides. When experiencing a pregnancy or infant loss, the experience can be so traumatic that even if or when the hospital sends a social worker to inform the parent about information to support them through their loss, oftentimes the individual and parent are too shocked and or in despair to pay attention to what the social worker is saying, never mind to the documents that are handed to them. With that being said, it is important, in my opinion, that the gynecologist or GP follow up with the bereaved going over the options of support and ask if it is warranted during their post-hospital appointment. In this episode, we will hear from the Pale Network's program manager, Michelle LaFontaine, on the Pale Network's history and advocacy work throughout Canada and services, and about Michelle LaFontaine's personal experience that led her to the Pale Network, leading Pale in championing this cause. Please advise, this content discusses personal experience about miscarriages and may be triggering to some. The information provided in this episode is from the opinions of the interviewee and interviewer. Viewers or listeners' discretion is advised. Welcome to Freedom to Know Wellness. I am your host, Michelle Samuels. I would like to introduce Michelle LaFontaine from Sunnybrook Hospital's The Pale Network to Freedom to Know Wellness podcast. How are you doing today, Michelle? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Good, good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be able to participate in this podcast. Actually, this very important podcast, I should state. So My please tell you. me, so please tell the listeners a little bit about what the Pale Network is, the acronym, et cetera. So we are a pregnancy and infant loss network, uh, often referred to as Pale Network. We became part of Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in 2017 after a legislation was passed in Ontario. So in 2015, there was a piece of legislation that was passed called the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Research and Care Act. Mm -hmm. And once that legislation passed, we then received a mandate from the Ministry of Health to provide peer support and education. So we have uh, three main areas that we focus on with our organization. The first, of course, is our family support program. So we offer peer support to any family in Ontario who's experienced pregnancy or infant loss up to 12 months of age. And this is offered at no cost, and we currently do it online over the phone and are starting back in person groups in some different communities across the province. 
We also have an education component. So we offer education to healthcare professionals who care for families at the time of their loss. And we do a lot around awareness and advocacy, hosting events in different parts of the province. And we also are able to advocate both at a provincial level and a federal level for improved bereavement care. Oh, wonderful. So you're not just isolated to Sunnybrook or to the province of Ontario. Well, the services are isolated to the province of Ontario, but certainly not to Sunnybrook. And because we are really advocating for a national bereavement strategy, we're able to do some of that work at a federal level. We're the only province in the country that has this type of program, and we really feel that it would be important for all Canadians to be able to access peer support and education. Wow, that is actually, it's, it's surprising to hear that Ontario is the only province that provides this. Um, so from what I'm understanding that you're stating is that the Pale Network was active before you connected with Sunnybrook. That's right. So, so Pale Network started uh, mm -hmm. in the 90s. So we've been around for over 30 years. It was started by a group of mothers who experienced pregnancy and infant loss and realized that there were just no supports available for them. It started as Perinatal Bereavement Services of Ontario, and we changed our name in 2012. Uh, more to reflect the family experience. So families weren't Googling perinatal bereavement to find support after their baby had died. And so the name was changed really just to reflect uh, a less medical model and really wanting to connect more with families. Okay. Okay. Wow. Sorry, I'm still a little bit surprised that this is only available in Ontario. It's very disappointing. I'm really glad that you guys are advocating on a federal level because it's strongly needed. Um, what is your role at the Pale Network? I have the pleasure of serving as the program manager for the Pale Network. So I oversee the program and all the strategic planning and implementation of program development. I see. And what made you want to work with the Pale Network? Is there personal or professional goals? What is the reason why? I experienced losses myself and came to Pale Network for support after those losses. I had a first trimester loss that resulted in an atopic pregnancy, which then one of my fallopian tubes ruptured. And so I lost my fertility at that point, and we could only conceive using IVF. Anyone who's gone through infertility will recognize the challenges that are inherent to that type of treatment. And so on our second cycle, I was successful with a twin pregnancy and carried Beautiful. that pregnancy. Thank you carried that pregnancy for five months uh, and then unfortunately uh, experienced stillbirth at five and a half months pregnant with those twins. They would be 18 this year. And so, you know, I, I feel that we received excellent medical care while we were in hospital, but left the hospital having no idea what to do, where to go, and how were we ever going to see past this. I, I really felt quite hopeless and didn't think that we were going to survive this. And it wasn't until a friend of a friend who knew someone who had had a loss that connected me to this type of peer support. And I remember sitting in my first peer support meeting, looking at the facilitators of that meeting and thinking, they're upright. They went back to work. They went on to have a family. Maybe this is something that we'll be able to survive. And so that was the first time I felt any kind of hope. After coming home from the hospital, I also felt like, well, I was five months pregnant with twins and surely somebody would want to check my body and do any kind of physical follow-up. And 
So I connected with my family doctor and because I really felt, you know, emotionally and mentally, I was coming unglued. I really did not. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. And he prescribed me sleeping pills and sent me on my way. And then I connected with my obstetrician. And after explaining to the receptionist why I could not come in person for an appointment, she had the obstetrician phone me. And during that phone conversation, he said, I know exactly what this must feel like for you. When I was doing my residency, I was fired from a residency and I thought I was never going to get a job as a doctor. But I did go on to get a job as a resident in Saskatchewan and look at me now. So there is hope and you will be able to get through this. And I felt like this is the reaction that I'm getting. This is the response I'm getting. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. That's not at all what this is. It, no, it's I didn't not. It's a job. I, so I'm sitting there going, well, what an example is this? <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I lost my children. I lost my family. Yeah. And I don't know how to get through this. The employer that I had at the time, um, I think, to be fair, they tried. They tried to be supportive, but it really was not enough. I went back to work far, far too soon, was not ready to be back at work. And at the time was working with kids and families and had a caseload of 45 families, all of whom had seen me five months pregnant with twins. And so, and I asked about, you know, could I have a different caseload? And the response I got then was that we have a commitment to our families. And so I was, I left that job. I was not able to continue working for them. So my loss was in August in 2005. And I started a new job in December of 2005. Okay. So you moved on from that job, not onto Pale Network. I did, actually. I stayed with that job for 11 years and loved my work, really loved okay. my work. I joined Pale Network on the board of directors, actually, because I was looking at a way to give back and mm -hmm. was interested in finding out, you know, how, how governance works and, and just kind of different points in my career. So I joined uh, the board of directors just as a committee member and then three months later was elected into the role of president. And then we were advocating for this bill to be passed. I never imagined if someone had told me that my little volunteer role in the board of directors was going to turn into provincial advocacy and try to get legislation. It, it was all consuming for a number right. of months. We were so fortunate to be able to work with Mike Cole. He was the MPP who introduced this bill. He's now the deputy mayor of Toronto, mm -hmm. but he was transformational in terms of what this meant for families and for professionals in this province. So we owe everything to Mike Cole. If it wasn't for this bill being passed, we would not be able to do the work that we're doing today. Originally, we were kind of working with the ministry and wanting to join with Sunnybrook. Sunnybrook, as the hospital, had really proven themselves to be a very passionate advocate for families experiencing pregnancy and infant loss, had developed programs within their own hospital um, to support families through that care. Uh, and so when there was an opportunity to join them in their Dan Women and Babies program, we worked hard uh, together with Sunnybrook and the Ministry of Health to make that partnership happen. I initially thought that I was going to help with the recruitment of the manager of that program. Then he was then the vice president of Sunnybrook and one of the directors at the Ministry of Health just said to me in a phone call at eight o'clock at night, but why wouldn't it be you? You know, why wouldn't you want to come and do this work? Then I started thinking about it and thought, I, I can't imagine watching someone else take this. And to see, I felt so passionate about 
the work that had been done and the vision that we were developing for what this could look like for families in the province, um, that I did leave my job where I was working and start doing this work instead. And it's been worth it, I'm assuming. With my whole heart, (laughs) with my whole heart, I do this work. And really, when I say I have the pleasure of serving, it is quite a privilege to be welcomed into families' lives in some of the most difficult moments, to be, you know, behind the scenes, really listening to families and hearing what some of their unmet needs are, and then being able to meet them and being able to create the programs that are responsive to the needs of families who are grieving, to be responsive to the needs of professionals who are caring for families and want to do better, uh, to listen to Indigenous communities across Ontario and hear what the gaps are and how can we best support them in the way that is most unique to them and most meaningful to Indigenous families has been truly a privilege to be able to do some of that work. You mentioned about the Indigenous families. So you have different programs that support medical doctors, I'm assuming social workers who help with the bereaved. So from what I'm understanding that the Pale Network has a separate program for Indigenous families and how is that operated? So we three years ago hired an Indigenous Special Projects Coordinator to help lead this work and began the work of developing trusting and lasting relationships with Indigenous organizations and healthcare leaders both on and off reserve. So we started with very kind of small inroads to be able to visit communities, to listen about what was happening currently, to understand the current state of bereavement care, and then to think of ways that we could work together to improve the care and support for Indigenous families. So to that end, we are currently still recruiting for Indigenous volunteers with a lived experience of loss to become peer supporters. Mm -hmm. Uh, We recognize that there are needs, you really kind of unique grief needs based on residential schools, um, generational trauma that non-Indigenous people may have difficulty understanding how that really kind of intersects with the grief of losing a pregnancy or a baby. And so we're actively recruiting for that. We have developed a pilot program that we uh, are able to distribute iPads to Indigenous families who may or may not have the tools to be able to access online support, to access our web resources, and continue to do work with different Indigenous communities to bring events to community. So so we're still at the really beginning stages of developing those relationships, being able to form those, really kind of listen and hear what the needs are before we jump to any action. We don't currently have anything specifically for Indigenous families, but that is certainly something that we're working towards. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. I love the fact that you're listening to be able to hear what their needs are. One of the things that we also address on this podcast is medical gaslighting that happens in the medical community to people who are Indigenous, to people who are Black and Brown. And these are things that women in general give birth. We go through the experiences in the medical um, hospitals, et cetera. And it's difficult on all fronts. But there is that experience that sometimes differs for those who are Indigenous or Black that they experience within the medical community. And so if you guys are also listening to that perspective, then you have a voice to be able to advocate for that as well. So I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are listening to all aspects of it. Um, Thank you. It, 
Thank you. In regards to the advocacy work, one of my interviewees, and I've experienced this with myself with miscarriage, and, and as you who have experienced miscarriage, you may have experienced this as well. But I know with hospital funding, it's limited. Um, and when we give birth, we have to be put into the maternity ward as difficult as that is. But one of the things that in regards to just to advocate, and this is one of the reasons why I'm bringing this up, just to advocate this as well, to have a separate section, have separate rooms for those who have miscarried. Because being brought through the maternity ward and seeing all those images of those new mothers who've just given birth. And then you're in the room and they have all the things about the breastfeeding, what the routine is in regards to um, what's going to happen to you now you've given birth, how to be able to manage your child. And you're sitting there and you're realizing, I didn't come out with my child. Yeah, That is yeah. traumatic in itself. Yeah, And one of the things, I'm just, I'm just putting this out there, that as someone who is connected with a hospital, these are the things that I know as women, and you can um, state for yourself as well, that this is something that is needed. Um, I know it's hard for funding, but with so many miscarriages that happen within the year, there must be another space that we can be put in that we can still be taken care of. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. And certainly we hear that from families as well. And we've heard actually differing opinions on that from families. So some families have said how difficult it was for them to be and labor and delivery or in a birthing unit and hear and see all the things that we know that you're going to hear and mm -hmm. see. And so we've also heard from families who say they were put in a room at the end of the hall or they were put on a different unit. And why did you put me somewhere different? I just had a baby and I deserve to be in the maternity unit where families who have babies are. The other thing that we struggle with is really just the awareness of that piece yeah. can go so far. So I don't think any of us expect for hospitals to build a new room or to come up with the money to be able to completely revamp what mm -hmm. their birthing unit looks like. However, can we think outside the box about where this family might be most comfortable and where are they going to receive the best possible care at the time of this loss? So for many hospitals, that's in the emergency department. You know, you, if you present in the first trimester with pain and bleeding, that there's a different uh, number of weeks where you're able to kind of go upstairs to the birthing unit. So some families aren't able to access that care and they remain in the emergency department. With who, who knows what else is happening in that emergency department and how long you'll be sitting and waiting and what your care looks like there. So for some families, they want desperately to go to the birthing unit where the care will be optimal for them. And other families really want a private space. And if that's not available, what we've often offered to professionals to say to families is at the very least acknowledge that you wish there was somewhere else that they could be. You know, I've I wish there was a private space that I could offer you at this time. Can I bring you a warm blanket? Is there someone I can call to be with you? Uh, and just, you know, when when there are shortcomings in the medical system or when there are shortcomings that we can't affect immediately, to acknowledge that as a care provider validates for that family that you have every right to feel that you wish you weren't in this space with everybody sitting around you. I hear that and here's how I can help. Yeah. It, it it's it's the compassion is so important. It's funny because oh, let me just at least clarify. It's important to be in the maternity ward because 
I know for my circumstance, I needed to have that because of what had happened to me. And quite a few people do. But it's like consideration of the room, you know, is there another back way that we can go through? That it's not having all those, you know, all those images. You know, when I was in the room, I had to ask, you know, they're doing all this stuff and they're coming in and out. And I'm sitting there for the longest time in the room. And I'm like, I'm so glad I have the room, but this is really disrupting. So I had to say, ask the nurse, I said, you know what? You know, I just had a miscarriage. She was like, oh, yes. I said, but this is not helpful. And she's like, I didn't even think about that. And I was just like that. That was the part where I was like, okay, I understand I have to be in the maternity ward and I'm getting the proper care that I need because I just gave birth. But have the the knowledge. I mean, the nurses are busy. I get it. I used to work in a hospital. It's very busy. But just that natural common sense, this person had a miscarriage, take this out of their room. Let me just help matters in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Or even have a space with that is a little more neutral that you know that that's the so we're not talking about building a new room exactly. or creating a new space but take yeah. your existing space and just neutralize some of those triggers exactly yeah. that's exactly that makes where a lot going. of sense you know just yeah. have that one room that it's like okay you know what this is neutral and of course you know if that one room is taken up then at least just the common sense to say let's take that stuff out of there so the person doesn't feel as much more more traumatized after what they've just experienced yeah yeah so I know in the hospitals, they make you aware, at least in Ontario, in the GTA, they make you aware about the program that the Pell Network offers. A social worker is often designated to the mother or the family to be able to help them to know, okay, these are the options. This is how you brief. But it's very short. It's a very short interaction. What is the Pell Network doing to be able to help people once they've come out of the hospital to be able to know about their their services? Is it something where you guys keep track of to be able to contact them? Do you ask like the social worker to be able to follow up with you guys? These are the people who've experienced this. These are the people who've stated that they're interested in um, having care. Do you guys follow up with people? How does that work? So in the the very first iteration of Pale, so we joined Sunnybrook in 2017. And the first thing we did was go out and do a provincial needs assessment. And we asked families and we asked professionals, what, sh- what should we focus on? We kind of have a blank slate. We just received funding from the Ministry of Health. What should we do? And we asked the same questions of families that we did of healthcare professionals. And I thought going into those needs assessments, what they're going to tell us, families will say we need more support. Educational professionals will say we need more education. And overwhelmingly, both groups said we need more education. Another question that we asked in there was, what would you think about an automatic referral? So how would you feel as a family if before you left the hospital, your healthcare professional could refer you to Pale Network so that you didn't have to go looking for us, um, admit that you needed help, then find us, then complete the paperwork. It's online, but complete the form that you would then send in to be contacted. Uh, and again, overwhelmingly, families said that would have been really helpful for them at the time of their loss. Mm-hmm. And professionals said that would be so helpful for us to know that we can hand off the care to someone, that we're not sending a family home with just a brochure or with just some information that who knows if they're ever going to reach out and get that again. So we we started doing that through a pilot project that then Uh, evolved into overall encompassing any professional in Ontario with the family's consent can refer a family directly to Pale Network and then we'll follow with the family uh, to reach them to understand best about what kind of support would be helpful to them. 
The other thing that we did to really try and make sure that the information was everywhere was to make all of our Pale Network brochures that are translated into the top six languages spoken in Ontario free of charge for any professional to order and have on hand. So we want to make sure that there were no barriers to accessing that brochure because we know from families that sometimes just receiving a brochure about our services, whether or not they are accepting the referral at the time, just receiving that brochure can feel validating that this is a loss deserving of support. Mm -hmm. And other people who have experienced this also need support. Mm -hmm. So it's okay that I feel like I need support too. And, and maybe when they go home from the hospital, it's a brochure shoved in with all this other information. But somebody might remember, I think we got something about that. And maybe it's been a few weeks and now you're ready to connect with Pale Network to see what else we can do. So a lot of what we do is around educating and making the healthcare professionals aware that that referral exists, that we are here to support families. Uh, when families self-refer, we're in c contact with them within 48 hours of receiving their referral. And when professionals send the referral in, they can identify when the family would prefer to be contacted. And so we can really, we kind of start already listening to families' needs at the very outset of that referral to make sure that we're not rushing anybody into anything, that we can wait as long as you need for us to wait and that we're here whenever you need for us to be here. In terms of the follow-up, uh, we don't do the follow-up because we don't receive consent to share information back and forth with hospitals, mm -hmm. um, but we receive the referral and then we do the follow-up directly with the family. Okay. Okay. It's wonderful to hear that you guys offer that with the doctors, the practitioners to be able to refer families in, in this circumstance because I know when I went through it, I ended up in the hospital, unfortunately, afterwards. I had some complications. And I remember the psychiatrist that I was speaking to, to be able to help me just to get through it. She said, okay, you know what, whenever you're ready, I said, you know what, let me just get through whatever this physical situation is going on, but let them contact me, you know, in about um, a month or two. And so say, so done, you guys followed up with me. And then I provided the rest of my information and you guys provided me with an excellent peer support person. And the group um, conversations were wonderful, were absolutely wonderful. So. One of the things I know I experienced this and I've spoken with other women, you know, we speak with the doctors, they explain to you the technical information in regards to the amount of um, the statistics in regards to the amount of miscarriages that happen, whether you're in your first trimester, second trimester, or what happens after the second trimester. And just that this is very common, but no matter what, even though this is told by our doctors, that emotional support to know that, you know what, oh my gosh, is it, was it my fault? You know, these are the things that keeps going through my mind. What could I have done differently? And so in regards to the services that you provide, what mantle, how do you guys take the mantle where the doctors leave off? I'm so glad you asked about that because I think that even when families are told by their primary care provider mm -hmm. or by their specialist, there's nothing that you could have done to prevent this. This was not your fault. I don't know that we really believe them. And I think that it's, it's been such an important ongoing discussion for us to have in our support sessions and in our group conversations. You know, I remember looking back on my loss and thinking, well, I took the dog for a walk that day, so maybe that started labor. Or 
And even though I was told, I was told many times by different professionals that it wasn't my fault and there wasn't anything that I did or didn't do that caused this to happen. In my subsequent pregnancy, my anxiety was so high wanting to make sure that I didn't repeat anything that Mm -hmm. I had done in that first pregnancy. Because especially for families, I think when the cause is unknown or when it's an earlier loss, then we do hear this is normal. This happens. Here's all the statistics behind it. And I think those are shared with well-meaning intent to say, you know, you're not alone in this. But I don't know that that's how we hear that as families. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we kind of pick that up is we make sure in our booklets that we have that we talk about this is not your fault. There's nothing that you did or didn't do that caused this to happen. Mm -hmm. And that it is a big topic of conversation, especially I think in our earlier loss groups that we have, that our peer support facilitators, they themselves are able to convey that message again and allow families to have the space to talk about. I know my doctor said it wasn't because of this, but I ate so many bananas that day. Like maybe that was a part of it. And to hear other people talk about, I know they said the same thing, but they said I could exercise, but I went for a run that morning and maybe then I started spotting. So maybe that was the cause of it. So I think we not only can we reinforce that concept that there was nothing that you did or didn't do, but also it's okay to question that. And that's kind of part of the process to go through. And we can be here as a group or over the phone one-to-one and talk about all of those thoughts that you're having, that all Mm -hmm. those thoughts are okay to have and to be expressed. I remembered in my group sessions, they had individuals like myself, and then they also had couples who had experienced the loss. And so with your peer support groups, I'm assuming that the peer support groups differ from those who are in single individuals from couples. So for example, with a couple, you have another couple that is their peer support person. So it it depends on whether they're coming to a group or whether they're having that one-to-one support. The one-to-one is what I'm speaking about. Yeah. So the one-to-one we don't offer because it's one-to-one, we don't offer two-to-two. So if you are coming for one-to-one phone support, then either member of that couple could receive support. So we do have support specific for partners and support specific for the birthing person. When we have groups, then it's more common for couples to come and attend the group as a couple. Um, but that's not something that we offer. We don't have couple support specific for a couple. That, that's, that's an interesting thought for us to consider that I wonder if that's maybe something that families would be interested in having. I remember one of the things with um, the person that I was with, it was very difficult for them. And for, for the, the partner, it is difficult because they question, okay, what, did, what could I have done? you know, differently, et cetera, um, and having that freedom to be able to speak. And if I'm understanding correctly, that if you have that one support person and you have a couple, that support person can be able to speak to um, the mother and then that same person can speak to the partner, correct? So we would try to match up uh, Mm -hmm. a partner with a lived experience of loss Mm -hmm. with the partner and match up a birthing person with a lived experience of loss with the person who experienced I get it. Okay. Well, that's good. That is good. Yeah. And we have a a partners in grief group that is just for partners to come to. So that's another way that partners can receive support specific to their needs as well. And that's so important to know. 
That's very important that you guys offer that service because they need the balance. They need to be able to have their voice heard, how they feel about the circumstances. And also, because one of the things that we also have to be careful of is blaming ourselves, you know, right. pointing fingers, right. you know? So that's another thing that having that peer support, I know my peer support, she was really great as this helping me to get my mind around it because that was so hard. I was like, what, what did I do wrong? I couldn't think of anything. And so, yeah, having that support was essential. Was yeah, very I strong think essential. it's natural to look for a reason, you mm -hmm. know, and, and when that reason isn't there, then you're kind of left to your own thoughts about what that could or could not be, or maybe they just didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And something else that comes up often in partner groups is really that nobody acknowledged the partner through that. And Nobody talks to them about yeah. what grief might look like in their partner. So whether you're the birthing person or the non-birthing person, your grief could look very different depending on the type of griever that you are. And it can really lead to some difficult conversations in couples. If I'm an instrumental griever, so I need to do things in my grief, mm -hmm. and my partner is an intuitive griever, and so they need time to think and process and talk. And if I don't recognize that, then I might be looking at my partner saying, you never cry. I never see this come up for you. You mm -hmm. never want to talk about it. You're always outside building something in the backyard and you're never here listening to me. And the partner might be thinking, all you ever do is cry. All you ever want to do is talk about this. Mm -hmm. and I can't hear that. But when we know that about our partner, then there's more opportunity for compassion towards one another and understanding towards one another and recognizing that it's not that this person is grieving wrong or is not grieving this loss. They're expressing their mourning in a very different way than I am, and that's okay, and I can be there for that too. Yeah. <laughs> it Sorry, I'm just putting a pin in that, what you just said, because, yeah, we grieve differently. We all really do grieve differently. And this is the thing where having those individual one-to-one -one peer support, it really made a big difference. And I'm telling you, though, those group sessions just, sometimes it's hard because you're almost reliving it, but you're yes, understanding yes. how to have that compassion, you know, hearing each other's stories, knowing where we can relate. It really does make a difference. And I thank you guys for that. So you're connected with the, I believe there's Ontario Bereavement website. You're one of, the, I think the Pale Network is connected under them as well. Or how does that work in regards to provincially? Are you guys like a separate entity or are you just connected under one organization? Yeah, so they're a separate organization that mm -hmm. we are kind of listed as one of their members. Mm -hmm. And so well, I think you're talking about Bereavement Ontario Network, B-O-N. Yes, yes, right? Bereavement Ontario Network, yes. So they're a fantastic group uh, of people who work in all sorts of areas of grief and bereavement. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are one of their members. So we pay a membership fee to them and we are able to be participating in their education, in their networking. Um, than anything they have to offer. They also put out a newsletter that we're able to submit things that, you know, program updates that we're doing or event updates that they'll then uh, put out. But they're a separate organization from us. For people who live in a separate province, do, um, are they able to contact you to be able to receive support, even though they are from a separate province? 
No. So okay. we're not able to offer peer support. If you had your loss in Ontario or mm-hmm. currently live in Ontario, uh, we're hoping that one of these days we'll be able to receive funding at a federal level, which would then kind of open that up to others. Okay. Um, but currently, because of the funding coming directly from our province, we are geographically restricted uh, to Ontario. I see. Well, I'm really hoping that whether it's possible for you guys to be able to branch out and have other organizations in different provinces, that you guys are will be federally funded to be able to achieve that because it is very, it's needed. It is essential. It's absolutely needed. We are mm-hmm. hosting our first conference ever next week, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's a national conference. So we have speakers and attendees coming from all across the country and really hoping that providing that opportunity as well will be able to give some more, just some more support behind the need for this to be, whether it's PAIL or whether it's other organizations that are able to receive funding from their provincial government, or whether this is enough for the federal government to see that a national bereavement care strategy would be so easily implemented. They've done a beautiful job of it in the UK. And I think we have a lot to learn from from that mm-hmm. approach. So I think certainly if we're able to just show them this can be done, you can actually reduce the number of stillbirths, you can make a difference in the lives of families, and it doesn't take that much. We're ready to go whenever they flip that switch. So I hope that the conference will be just another kind of jumping off point to prove that this is something that can be accomplished and we're able to do it. What is the name of this conference? Is it, and is this something that's publicly um, open to people? Yeah, so the, the conference is called Connected in Care. It's being it's next week on September 21st and 22nd. I believe that virtual registration might still be available, but registration for in-person attendance is closed. Uh, we hope to do this biannually, so we'll be doing it every other year. Uh, and again, this is the first time we've done it. So it was a big stretch goal for our team <laughs> to be able to pull this off. And I'm so proud of the work that they've done to do it. No, that's wonderful. And it's great that you're opening up not to just the people within the medical community, but the people like myself. Yeah. Yeah. We have bereaved families coming. We have students coming. We have professionals coming. I think it's really important. One of our core values at Pale is to weave the family experience through everything that we do. So in all the education that we provide, it's taught by a bereaved parent and a professional. All of the resources that we develop are written and co-authored with families and are supported by families. And so we really believe in those patient as educator principles that the families with lived experience are the ones that are the experts. And we need to make sure that we are, you know, that saying about nothing about us without us, that Mm -hmm. we know what we need. We know what we want. And so it's not up to an organization to make those decisions. If you haven't really heard what the needs are, that that's where your mandate comes from. That's where you kind of get your marching orders from. You listen to families, you listen to professionals, and you provide them with what they're telling you they need. Wonderful. Wonderful. If you don't mind giving us the name of the website to be able to register for this event. Yeah, so it's right on the Pale Network website. So okay. palenetwork.ca. Uh, you can go right to the conference link that is there and registration will be available for you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michelle, for taking time out of your day to be able to share with us all this information about the Pale Network. And again, if you go to palenetwork.ca, you can be able to find out all the different resources that 
the Pale Network and Sunnybrook Hospital provides for people in Ontario. I just want to say at Freedom to Wellness, I want to thank supportive organizations like the Pale Network for sharing and lending their voice and resources here on this platform. It helps listeners out there who have or know someone who has experienced this type of loss on healthy, nurturing ways to grieve and heal. And I personally thank this organization too. Thank you, Michelle, and to the Pale Network. And I just wanted to thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. So to close, I always believe that reading information is one thing, but hearing from individuals' lived experience is impacting and paramount. And that's what we do here at Freedom to Know Wellness. Thank you and be well. Thank you for watching today's episode. I thank program manager Michelle LaFontaine for her transparency and vulnerability. It was an emotional yet necessary interview that I and Michelle LaFontaine hope will benefit others looking for support during their loss, as well as bring awareness to the cause of pregnancy, infant, and elective abortion loss that sadly is an issue that should not need advocacy on a federal, never mind provincial level, but does. Let's try to change that. Now, to be honest, this was the hardest episode I've done. The discussion brought me right back mentally and emotionally to my own experience, often distracting me from my words, the cadence of my speech. But hard discussions like today are needed. We go through things in life not only for ourselves, but in turn to help others. And that is my goal with Freedom to Know Wellness. Please subscribe to this channel and follow the Freedom to Know Wellness Substack blog. Thank you again and be well.